0: Hey everyone, this is Jamie Austin, pastor of Woodlake Church. Thank you so much for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Woodlake, head on over to woodlake.church and enjoy this message. Well, good morning. Thank you guys so much for being here today. Hey, can you give it up for our worship team this morning? Man, that was phenomenal. It has been such a great service already. Well, hey, if you're new with us today, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Woodlake. And I want to introduce you to my family real quick. This is my wife Whitney and our sons Teddy and Riley. Uh, Our youngest, Teddy, just turned two this weekend. Um, So I'm saying that today, just pray for my wife and we're we're gonna make it through this whole season again. Uh, Man, we love these kids so much. And I know you've heard this already today, but our goal is that you would experience God and find family today. And I promise you, we mean that when we say it. Uh, And after service, I'd love to get to know you. So just stop by. I'll be by the cross outside these doors and I would love to say hi to you. After service today. Well, today we are continuing in our series, I Am. And if you're new with us, this series has looked at the Easter story and looked at some some specific characters that were there at the arrest, the trial, and the execution of Jesus Christ. On the first Sunday of this series, Easter Sunday, Pastor talked about Barabbas, and if you missed that message, go back and check it out. But during the message, he gave us a really good thing to think about, which is that Jesus took our place when he went to the cross. Last week, we looked at the two thieves on either side of Jesus, and Pastor asked us the question, when it comes to Jesus, are we cursing him or are we calling out to him? Today, we get to talk to you about Pontius Pilate, who was the governor that oversaw Jesus' trial. Throughout history, there hasn't been a lot said about Pilate outside of the Bible. There's been a few writings that reference him, but for history, there really wasn't any physical evidence that Pilate ever existed, that was until 1961. In 1961, an Italian archaeologist and his team were working in the areas around the Mediterranean, and they found something that is now known as the Pilate Stone. This stone was in some rubble and had an inscription on it that I'm going to read to you. The English translation says, The Divine Augusti, this Tiberium Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has dedicated this. This stone might seem like a small find to many, but it made a big impact on history. Through this stone and this inscription, we learn three things about Pilate. The first is that he really existed. Here was some physical evidence for this person, and not only that, because of that, it's just one more proof of the Bible and its validity, which is pretty cool. The second thing we learned was his title, Prefect, Up to this point, we knew that he was a governmental leader. We knew what the Bible and other writings said. But because of that title, we learned that not only was he a leader in the area, he actually had some military authority. Pilate was a big deal. The last thing that we learned, and to me, the most important for our conversation today, we learned through the inscription and who it's dedicated to. Pilate had built what can be seen as a temple in the honor of the Roman emperor at the time whose name was Tiberius. One of the articles had this to say about Pilate. Plainly, as others also did, Pilate was seeking to flatter the emperor. This fact about Pilate lines up with scripture and lines up with an aspect of his personality that I want us to talk about today. If you don't know the story, you're about to see Pilate waffling back and forth about what he believes, about making a decision with the chief goal of getting affirmation and winning over the crowd. We know from history and even through this archaeological find that Pilate cared a whole lot about what those around him had to say and think. In psychology, there's this term of being a people-pleaser, and I want to read you the definition out of Medical News Today. It says that a people-pleaser personality means a person feels a strong urge to please others, even at their own expense. They may feel that their wants and needs do not matter or alter their personality around others here's what we're gonna see in Pilate. He is willing to alter a lot and willing to set aside the truth to please the crowd. Now, if you're taking notes today, I gave today's message a super corny title in the hopes that you remember it. And so here's the title for today's message, Pontius Pilate and the Problem with People-Pleasing. I know that it's just so corny, but hopefully it'll help you remember. Pontius Pilate and the Problem with People-Pleasing. Now, here is where I embarrassingly find myself in this story. If I was to admit it to you today, I care just so much what people think. I know I shouldn't, but I do. The sheer amount of time I spent figuring out if this jacket was gonna work today was just ridiculous. Now, while you might not be quite as inept as I am at being confident in yourself with those decisions, I think at one time or another, we all care just a little bit too much about the voice of the crowd. Whether it's our family members, the people that we work with every day, the people we go to school with, the people that we sit behind in class, the people that we follow and who follow us on social media, we care too much too often about what others have to say. And today, we're gonna talk about the problems that pop up when we try to please the crowd. One commentary had this to say about Pilate. Pilate has become a symbol of those who make religious decisions based on political convenience or popular opinion rather than godly truth and justice. Today, Pilate is a really good example of a really bad example. Now, today, we're gonna spend most of our time in the book of John, so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up. We'll go to John 18 to start out, but we're gonna go back and forth to the different Gospels. Now, I know in a crowd this size with people that are maybe new to church, the Gospels can be confusing. There are these four books in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that all tell the story of Jesus, And so the first time you come up to it, you might wonder why is this same story written four different ways. The best example that I can think of is if you and three friends go on a trip. When you come back, if I was to ask you about the trip, you all would tell me the same core details. Like all four of you would say, we went to a beach in Florida for the week. But all four of you have different perspective and different details jump out in the story. That is the same reason that God gave us these four Gospels, so we can see Jesus' story through four perspectives and four personalities. And so today, as we study this, we're going to jump around between the stories a little bit. But again, we're going to start in John 18. At this point in the story, Jesus has been arrested, he's been tried before the Jewish high priest, and now he has been brought out in front of Pilate. If you don't know the history, basically the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus executed, but they had no power to do so, and so they had to put it in Pilate's hand. They had to bring it to the authority. And now we're in the middle of the trial and Pilate's talking to Jesus. John 18, 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? This was the biggest accusation against Jesus. They believed that he was vying for some political authority, and they knew that if they wanted to sway the Roman government, all they had to do was get them to believe that this was some radical revolutionary that was vying for a throne. And so Pilate just comes right out and asks him, so are you their king? Look what Jesus says. Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom's from another place. You are a king, then, Pilate said. Okay, here's something you need to understand about Pilate. Like I said at the beginning, he is trying to win over the crowd. That's his first goal. But his second equally important goal is he wants to look good doing it. He does not want to look stupid or have his authority questioned. And so even though he wants to do what they asked and execute him, he is vying for a reason. Just give me a reason and I will end this guy's life right now. And so he calls out to him. He says, so you are a king then. But listen to Jesus' response. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. This question, what is truth, is one of the most often remembered and quoted moments in this story. Now, if you study it, there are two different beliefs behind why he said, what is truth. The first is that he was being sarcastic. This guy has been brought in front of him. How dare you talk about truth in front of an authority like me? What is truth? They believe that he was probably being sarcastic and trying to get a rise out of Jesus. But the other possibility, and we can't know which one it was for sure, is that it was a genuine question. If you study ancient cultures, particularly those in this area at this time, Greek and Roman citizens had this epiphany about philosophy during this time, and they were so focused on figuring out the truth that a leader like him saying what is truth really could have been a valid question. So, Whether he's being sarcastic or he's genuinely asking, what is the truth, here is where we find our first problem with people pleasing. When we get ourselves so focused on the voice of the crowd, the truth gets clouded. Today, I want you to, for a moment, admit that sometimes the voice of the crowd's louder than we would like, and when that happens, we become less and less sure of the truth. Bruce Barton, the commentary writer, said this about Pilate. Pilate thought that all truth was relative. It could be whatever Rome wanted it to be. To many government officials, truth was whatever the majority of people agreed with or whatever the majority of people helped advance their own personal power and political goals. When there is no basis for truth, there is no basis for moral right and wrong. Justice becomes whatever works or whatever helps those in power. A few years back, I was in a class in seminary at ORU about postmodernism. And if you've never heard that term before, that is basically the world we're living in. It's a way of life and culture. And in postmodernism, there's a lot of markers for it, but the number one marker of a postmodern culture is one that no longer has objective truth. And if you don't believe that we're living in that, there is a phrase that has changed over the years. Back in the day, even in my own lifetime, there was this core belief of the truth. Like there is a moral good, there is a higher good, there is a truth that we can all find and follow. But in my own lifetime, I've heard it change to your truth and my truth. Today, you might stand here and you might think, no, that's not me, I know there is the truth. I'm not even necessarily saying that we'll believe something different but what we communicate changes when we don't wanna offend someone else's truth. Amen. And that's where we find Pilate in this story. Even though he said there is no basis for charges against him, and you're gonna see that phrase over and over and over, the truth gets cloudier and cloudier. Jesus actually talks about this himself. It's one of the most controversial things Jesus ever said. In John 14:6, he says this, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, before we start to think that Jesus' culture was completely different than ours, by saying, I am the truth, and daring to say there is a bigger truth that we should all follow, Jesus got executed for it. And so what do we do today? How do we live in a world where the truth gets cloudier and cloudier? Jesus actually prayed something over us, knowing that it would be the world we would live in. In John chapter 17, we see one of Jesus' prayers. It's actually the longest recorded prayer by Jesus in the Bible. In this prayer, he prays for his disciples, his followers, and all believers to come. And listen to what he says about the truth in this prayer. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. If you're struggling with decisions this morning, if life has become increasingly difficult and you're just figuring out how do I work my life out, we need to start building our faith, our life, and our decisions on God's word and stop building them on man's opinion if we want God to help us to live a life worth living, if we wanna stop feeling so conflicted all the time, we've gotta learn how to just build our lives on the truth and the truth is God's word itself. At this point in the trial, you're gonna see Pilate start to understand what the truth is, but remember, it's getting cloudier the longer we're in this. Now we're gonna jump over to Matthew 27. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who's called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they handed Jesus over to him. Did you catch that? He knows the truth. He knows that it was out of their own self-interest that they brought Jesus to him, and yet he's listening anyway. And why does he do it? Because of his own self-interest. There was something in him that was way more concerned about the crowd than the conviction that comes with knowing the truth, and he says Jesus is innocent, but he lets them make the call anyway. Remember, you're gonna hear this phrase over and over that Jesus was innocent, So now, Pilate's in front of them, he's waffling about what he wants to do, and the truth has gotten cloudy. And right after this, we see the next problem with trying to please the crowd. And look where it happens in Matthew 27, 19. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Pilate's in the middle of a trial, and somehow this message gets to him from his wife. Now, before I go further into this, there are a few things you need to understand about his culture. The first thing is that in ancient cultures, and I'm not just talking Bible-believing cultures, a lot of cultures at this time, dreams were seen as a valid source of revelation and warning. So in his culture, a message coming because of a dream would have been a respected thing that he should act on. Second, Roman women at this time were respected and their opinion mattered to those in leadership. Now, it didn't mean necessarily that his wife held those positions and did those things on her own, but history would tell us, and again, I'm not just talking about the Bible. So if you're new to the Bible, this is other places in history. History tells us that a leader like Pilate could make a decision based on the opinion of his wife and the way that I read it in one of the commentaries this week was that many times those leaders would allow their wife to influence them to make the more noble decision. So here's Pilate, he's in the middle of this trial, he's got the message from his wife. He knows that dreams matter and they listen because the pagan gods, all of the other things all use dreams and so he's saying, okay, this is a dream, and then secondly, it would make complete sense for him to be swayed by his wife in this urgent message. Now let's watch what he does. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. Okay, did you catch it? I'm gonna slow down and read it again. Pay close attention to what he does right after he gets the message. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. Okay, did you catch it? What did he do with his wife's message? He ignored it completely. Okay, now this is where I have a little more in common with Pilate than I would like. (laughs) So in my life, decision making, not a strong suit of mine. I like to get my wife's opinion about things. Another really fun thing that I like to do is after getting her opinion, I'm gonna take a few days and get at least four or five opinions from other people just to see where the polls stand and see if she comes out on top. Now, here's the problem. About a week later, very often, I will realize those three words that every husband has thought, whether we've been man enough to say it out loud or not, which are, you were right. Now that doesn't hit the same a week later and she does not appreciate it. <laughs> so why do I do this? And why would I be willing to say that many of you have done this, men and ladies? Because oftentimes we care more about a consensus than about godly counsel. That is the next problem we find in Pilate and a problem that is in all of us if we are not careful. Pilate has be given, been given good Counsel, And even though he knows what he's supposed to do, the consensus of the crowd means more to him. So if you're taking notes, the truth gets clouded and godly counsel gets quieted. The book of Proverbs tells us a lot about how to get godly counsel. One of the verses in chapter 13 says, walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. In Proverbs chapter one, it tells us what wisdom is and how to find somebody who is a wise person. It says this, let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge but fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you wanna know what God wants you to do with your life, if you're wrestling with decisions, you've got to listen to God-fearing people. Now, I am not trying to say that Pilate's wife loved the Lord. There is no reason to think that. But it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and there was a reverence in her because that dream was not something she came up with and there was something telling her what to do and I believe that was God. So if you're wrestling what to do, you've gotta find godly people. You know, I talked about Whitney and how I like don't listen to her and stuff. Well, when we were talking about this this week when I was very clearly getting permission to say all this, (laughs) she said, Hey, make sure you tell them that the reason you should listen to me is because I love Jesus and I pray and I listen to him. (laughs) If you're wrestling with who to listen to in your life, I found an article this week from a counseling office that gave like 20 things that you should find in somebody to give you godly counsel. Well, you're not gonna remember 20 things. And so as I was looking at it, I couldn't remember all of it, and I just thought through it and thought, what is the one thing that we could all look to as God-given counsel in our life? And it's simply this. Godly counsel loves God, loves and follows God's word, and loves you if the person you're listening to doesn't fit all of those things, turn the volume down on them and the volume up on the people that God would put in your life. Today, as we're wrestling with life decisions and some of the things you're dealing with, I can't even begin to say that I understand. But I will say this, if you will ask the Lord to put someone in your life, just look at them and listen and say, do they love God? Do they love and follow his word? And do they love me? Now let's go back to Pilate. Pilate was standing before a crowd that claimed to love God, but clearly they didn't. They claimed to follow God's word, but they had missed their own prophecies in the word that they memorized about Jesus Christ, who was standing right in front of them. And if you study history, they had no love for Pilate or the Romans at all. They were playing into the things that they thought would affirm this leader, but they had no love for Pilate. So with those things in mind, he never should have listened to them. So at this point in the story, he's got Jesus, he's been questioning him, he's gone back and forth, now he's out in front of the crowd, he ignores the message from his wife, and let's look at what happens next. We're gonna jump over to Luke for this part of the story. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers of the people, and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion, I've examined him in your presence and found no basis for your charges against him. That's important. Remember, he's gonna keep saying this guy's innocent. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. This next verse is gonna show us the biggest problem that comes up when we try to please others. He just said Jesus doesn't deserve death. He's completely innocent. But listen to what he says. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. The voice of the crowd has gotten so loud that he is willing to punish an innocent man right in front of him. Now this scene in scripture gets very graphic and very dark. If you've ever seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, they do a really good job of showing what this might have been like. History tells us that as the Romans would beat those that were in their care, those that were getting summoned and getting put on trial like this, they would beat them so brutally that many other prisoners would die right there during a punishment that they were supposed to be let go from. History would tell us that Jesus' beating was so bad that it is most likely why he couldn't even carry his cross the entire way, because he was so wounded, so broken, so bloody. And Pilate had the audacity to do that because he was innocent. This is the biggest problem that happens when we try to please the crowd in our life. Sure, the truth will get cloudy, godly counsel will get quieted, but the biggest problem we're focused too much on what everybody else has to say and think is that our character gets compromised. Pilate knew the truth. He knew Jesus didn't deserve this, but he did it anyway to just appease the crowd. Now, what should Pilate have done? Well, reading the story, it's obvious. He should have let Jesus go. And in this moment, we see one of the sneakiest sins that we could ever deal with. In theology, it's called the sin of omission. Basically, there's sins of commission, which is like you shouldn't do that thing and then you do that thing. A sin of omission is where it talks about in the book of James. I'll just read it to you. James four, if anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's a sin for them. So this is one of the sneakiest ways that this people-pleasing thing can get us in trouble. It's not even necessarily about doing the wrong stuff. It's knowing the right things we should say, the right things we should do in our life, and allowing us to make little compromises and not do what God's called us to do. Now, if you know anything about compromise, is compromise doesn't quit. You can never compromise enough. And we're going to see that happen throughout the rest of Pilate's, story. Look at verse 4 of chapter 19. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis, he says it again, for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. Now again, you can read this sarcastically. He has whipped Jesus. Jesus is bloody and broken and wearing a crown and wearing a robe, dressed like a king. You can see him sarcastically saying to these Jewish people, well, here's your king. But one of the commentaries I read, and some others have a similar idea, is that this was Pilate's feeble attempt to get sympathy from this angry crowd. He brings Jesus in front of them and says, look what you made me do. This is on your head, not mine. Here is the man. Have you had enough? Family, the enemy who is very real has never had enough. There is no compromise that will be good enough short of you losing your soul and causing as much damage as you can along the way. And so the crowd is not satisfied. They almost don't even notice Jesus, they don't see his wounds, they do not care at all. Look what they say. As soon as the chief priest and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. I, as for me, I have no basis for charge against him. If you study this chapter in particular, it'll show you that Pilate's actually getting scared. Now let's think through why would he be afraid. At the beginning, he said, you are a king. He began to notice Jesus' authority. Throughout the story, you see him say, I find no basis for charge against him. He noticed Jesus' innocence. And at one point in the story, they tell him that this man is claimed to be the son of God. Okay, remember that this guy was given as a message through his wife, through a dream. And he believed that dreams may be some supernatural thing. And so when they call him the son of God, I think that Pilate, even just for a moment, was like, whoa. This might be the son of God, or a God anyway. So he's afraid He has all of this conviction in him now. He knows that the man's innocent. He knows that in some way he has authority. He knows that this man, in some way, might actually be a deity. And watch what they do to get him over the edge. John 19, 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. They hit on his biggest insecurity and that puts him over the edge. Remember I told you at the beginning, there was that stone that was dedicated by Pilate to a Roman emperor. It was one thing for this crowd of people that he didn't even like to be in front of him. It was a very different thing for them to call his authority to Rome into question. He would never stand for that. And so all the conviction in the world about Jesus' innocence meant nothing, because he would not dare for a moment let them think that he was not the true Roman leader that he tried to portray himself as. And tapping on his biggest insecurity made him make the biggest wrong decision of his life. Family, if you do not know the truth of God's word, if you do not have godly counsel speaking into your life, the crowd will always tap on your biggest insecurity to make you make your biggest compromises. So at this moment, we see Pilate. He's insecure. He's nervous. They've told him that there's no way he's a friend of Caesar. There's no way that he is a true Roman leader if he lets this guy live. And look what he does next Matthew 27 24. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, the crowd's getting louder. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. So Pilate comes over to a bowl of water that's been brought in front of the crowd, and he stands there beginning to wash his hands. If you've ever watched an Easter play or many of the movies, this is kind of an always a moment that they show. Now, here's what's interesting about this moment this hand washing was in no way a Roman custom. When you look at that, you think that this is normal, like I guess this is just the way that they would do it. That's not true at all. This is a Jewish custom, and by doing this, he's telling the Jewish leaders, fine, you want me to do this your way? Then by your standards, I'm innocent. Here's the problem. He was quoting something out of the book of Deuteronomy, and he was not a follower of God, he did not love God's word, he was not a Jewish person, and as a result, this did very little more than get his hands wet. As I was studying history this week, I saw that in Roman cultures, someone like Pilate, even if he did everything he could to absolve himself from guilt, because he was the authority at the trial, Jesus' blood was never going to come off of his hands. A while back, I came on staff for this church for the first time, and I came right out of college, um, and so I made some mistakes, as any young person does when they're in their first job. And one of the mistakes that has stuck with me the most over the years involves one of our church vehicles. Um, I was driving the van one night, and you might not know this about me, but me and big vehicles don't mesh real well. Uh, That is why I basically drive a glorified go-kart to work every day. Mm So I was driving the church van, I was pulling it in late at night after an event. And at the time we had these gates behind the church, like individual spots for each van. So I go to pull it in and I felt that thud and heard that sound that means one thing, you are a moron. (laughs) And so of course, as a nervous young leader, I overcorrect the wheel and I gouge that gate way into the side of that van. So I pull the van the rest of the way in. I am so freaked out. I call another staff member at the church. I'm like, man, I'm so sorry. I don't know what to do. Well, that phone call was the equivalent of washing my hands of it. It did nothing. The van was still very messed up. Well, fast forward a few days later, and I'm with another staff member riding in that van, and we are pulling back into the church parking lot, and wouldn't you know it, right as we're pulling in, Pastor Jamie is pulling out. He slows down his truck right next to the van. He rolls the window down. He leans over and looks at the van and he goes, guys, what happened to that van? And so I messed up every bit of 22 year old courage that I had, I leaned forward in the passenger seat and I said, Pastor Jamie, I'm so sorry, that was me. We quickly roll up to the window and we watch as Pastor Jamie says nothing else. He just takes his phone out, takes a picture of the side of the van and drives away. Now that happened about 12 years ago. You wanna know how many times he's brought that up since? Not even once. Here's what I need to tell you about compromise. If you've made compromise in your life, maybe you've tried to wash your hands of it. Maybe you've said sorry only to go back and do the thing again. Maybe you've tried to get yourself out of it and there's something in you that feels the weight of your sin. The reason my phone call to that other staff member did nothing is because they had no authority to forgive me. But the reason that I can stand today and say that I think I've been forgiven for that (laughs) is that Pastor Jamie, who actually had the authority to forgive me, forgave me and let it go 12 years before it ever coming up family, if you have made compromises in your life, there is a way to be forgiven of it completely. As we go back to the story, we see Pilate make the final wrong call. At the end of the story in John 19, here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. They hit on that insecurity one final time, and that was one too many. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Pilate made the wrong call. He allowed the truth to get clouded. The godly counsel in his life got quieted. His character got compromised, and he made the wrong call. But because he made the wrong call, we can be forgiven completely and eternally. In Acts chapter 13, it says this, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. So I need to ask you today, have you made some compromises in your life that you don't think you can come back from? The Bible is very clear that if we ask Jesus to forgive, he forgives. The Bible is very clear that it says that he takes our sin as far away from us as the East is from the West. He blots it out completely. But the first step lays with you. You've gotta ask him to forgive you. Now, maybe you're here today and you already have a relationship with Jesus, but you've been challenged this morning. In a moment during our altar time, I'd invite you to come for prayer. Maybe in one way or another, the truth has gotten cloudy, you've ignored godly people in your life, the crowd's gotten too loud, and maybe you've made little compromises. Let me challenge you, compromise doesn't quit. But there is hope for the future if we just allow Jesus back in. If you could bow your heads and close your eyes all across this room. The Bible's real clear about what we do next. If you wanna begin a relationship with Jesus for the first time or the first time in a long time, All you've got to do is ask. And the Bible says that he will forgive you and he will begin a life with you, not just in eternity, but eternity beginning right now. But you just got to ask him. So if you're here today and you want to say yes to Jesus for the first time or the first time in a long time, I'm going to count to three and I want you to raise your hands all across this room. People have said yes to Jesus all day today and I want you to be a part of this. So don't waste any time. If that's you, I'm going to count to three and I want you to raise your hands. One, two, three three. I want to say yes to the Lord today. Awesome. Leave your hands up for a second so I can see you and pray with you. Family, if you would, repeat after me. Say, Dear Jesus, you are the Son of God. You died for me, for my sin, and my place. Forgive me and make me new. From this day forward, with your help, I'm all yours. In Jesus' name, at Woodlake Church, our passion is to help you connect with God, find your sweet spot in ministry, and grow in your faith. Everyone is welcome at Woodlake. If you've never been to church before in your life, or if you're a lifelong Christian, Woodlake is a place where you can experience real and lasting spiritual growth. Music is upbeat. The messages are straight from God's word. They're very practical. We also have great programs for infants through 12th grade. I mean, we have something for everyone. Come check us out this weekend. I promise you'll be glad you did.